said uh, would be of of specific application and help during uh, during these years and uh, and I just think that um, it it happens more often than not that during kind of the sophomore junior years that uh, that the Lord seems to continue to work in your heart in a in a cumulative way that some of the adrenaline some of the adrenaline for the first year is kind of worn off uh, the uh, moving into kind of the what I would call the deep cycle of your uh, of your time here and it's also really true that in the process of all that that the Lord begins to like what Professor Chua was talking about begins to develop your heart you begin to grow begin to see yourself uh, maybe more accurately than you did uh, when when from your first year that it's a part isn't it that when you come into this community that that you begin to not only see your God for how beautiful he is and you get to see his word with with accuracy and truth but you also begin to see yourself a little bit more accurately right in a lot of ways when you come up to the the dorms and when you're around this place that uh, that you begin to when you might come in and say boy everybody thinks this way <laughs> this is this is how everybody lives life and then you're on a wing of 25 people and um, the majority of them don't think the way that you think right uh, they come at life from a different perspective that there's true diversity that there's that there's a difference in the people of god but yet at the same time there is a beautiful unity that we have uh, resting under and being in uh, the body of Christ that sits under the authority of his word So as that happens as that process begins you begin to see yourself maybe more accurately and You begin to see the beauty of uh, the scriptures and the wonderfulness of who Jesus Christ is that in the process of that you begin to grow and a taste of holiness in some ways getting to enjoy the the blessedness of your pursuit of Christ and in the process of that as well, the Lord reveals uh, issues of sin in your heart, right? In different ways. Whether that be in a chapel message or whether that be uh, spending some time with a faculty member or uh, in the context of your local church. Uh, might be uh, your roommate. Might be your roommate. That just that the Lord uses to help you to see um, what and in ways that uh, that sin is exposed in your heart and i believe that in these days that what you do with that matters what you do with that matters because this place like what professor Tu had mentioned that this is a unique place this is a place where uh, the expectation is to look upon the greatness of christ and to look upon his truth of his word but also to create a culture that is safe Create a, create a culture that is safe. A place where you can be who God has made you to be in the place that you are. And that's going to mean both expressions of holiness and it's going to mean the exposure of sin. And that's not something that should be run away from or somewhere that you need to hide, right? As a matter of fact, um, I believe that everybody, when one of the initial implications of sin is that we hide we hide 
that right in, uh, right in Genesis 3, 7 through 8, that when Adam and Eve sinned, their first response was to hide. Was to hide from each other and then to hide from God. And that's really what sin does, doesn't it? That sin just causes us to, to move away from others, to move away from our God, and to hide because we don't want to be known. We don't want to be able to, to, um, to communicate or to let both either our God and others to see us for who we really are. But isn't it wonderful that in the gospel that we don't have to be ashamed? We don't have to be driven by our guilt or by embarrassment. But Romans 8, 1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the beauty of what it means to be in Christ Jesus is to say that I don't need to hide, that I don't need to be ashamed, because the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus Christ has bore my shame. Jesus Christ has bore my guilt. And that even in the depth and the reality of my own sin, that there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. So therefore, there's freedom. There's freedom to live in Christ, and there's freedom to actually recognize and acknowledge uh, the wonderful, gracious blessing of the Lord exposing sin in my own heart, knowing that, that I'm not left alone to deal with that, but rather I can run to my God. 1 John 1.9 says that, that if, I don't, if I don't have any sin, right, 1 John Uh, 1.8 says this, reading the Word of God, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If If we say that we've not sinned, we've made him a liar and his word is not in us. What a remarkable time in your life to be in a place that actually allows you to be who you are And to actually be an encouragement to you to be more like Jesus Christ. In a place that has no other expectation than for you to grow into Christ-likeness in the way and in the means and in the personality and the expression by which God has created you to experience him. Dearly beloved master student, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question becomes, not, not, that there's this, not that there's this concern that there is sin, but rather, what do you do when there is sin? How do you respond? What do you do? Here's an environment by which you can, you can grow and, and be safe here. And you're surrounded by people who are willing to help and to encourage. How is it, how is it that you can grow in a safe place, that you have the freedom to fail, that, that you recognize that there's sin, but yet there's a greater Redeemer in Jesus Christ? What do you do? And really, it's this posture of repentance, isn't it? We want to create in your heart and on this campus a culture of repentance. In a lot of ways, what I think defines a TMC student is that we are a people of repenters. That on a regular basis, on an everyday basis, that we proclaim the beauties of Christ and we say, I have fallen short of that and I repent of that. And I want to grow into Christ-likeness and not be restricted by my own shame or guilt or embarrassment, but rather to say, this is actually who I am and this is how greater my God is. And let's live that way.
instead of letting some other culture or some other expectation define who you are. If you can't find another place, I mean, excuse me, what a beautiful opportunity it is for us to be in a place like that. But the question becomes, sometimes, honestly, right, how do you repent, <laughs> right? I don't know, am I the only person that had a problem with that my sophomore and junior year, right? I'm, I'm being, I, every time I look at the scriptures, I see my own heart, and I'm like, well, God, you are beautiful, and I, I, I have fallen short of that. Well, what do I do? How do I respond? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? What does it really look like? And so during these middle years where you're growing, right, you're growing and you're changing and you're, you're understanding God's truth and in the process of that, that the Lord reveals sin and you're in an environment by which you can say, I want to deal with my sin. How do you do that in this community is by having a posture of repentance. So what I want to do today is just to talk about what that looks like, okay? Just to talk about what that looks like. And then my hope is, is that as you have a picture of what it looks like, then as you walk with your friends and you invite your families, you invite your local church, you invite your, your student life staff, your faculty to walk with you, uh, that, that we can be a culture where we're, not, where we're not afraid and we're not bound by guilt and shame, but rather that we live and deal with the sin in our hearts with the beauty of the truth of the gospel. Because these are days where you can do that, right? And this is a place where we want to help you do that. So as we think about that, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7. And, and we're just going to walk through it. I think these times are uh, maybe a little bit more lecture-based than, um, than maybe more preaching-based. But you know me, even when I lecture, I preach. When I get excited about, you know, a new burrito place in town, I get excited about it. So who knows what's going to end up happening. But nonetheless, we'll, we'll navigate our way through it. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 7, right? 2 Corinthians 7, what it does is, is that Paul, um, as you're looking there, the context is that Paul has, uh, been, has visited the Corinthian church. He's visited there several different times, both in his second missionary journey and in his third missionary journey. And there were a lot of challenges with the Corinthian church, right? There were, if you read 1 Corinthians and you see some of, the, some of both the sins and the false leadership and uh, all the false doctrine that was found in the Corinthian church, that there were a lot of things that were happening. The Lord was exposing sin there, and Paul was, again, faithful to, to speak to that, to address those things in love, to call people to holiness, and so he's done that. As a matter of fact, his, his heart was, was burdened for them, and he's reached out to them multiple times and has come back again and again, appealing to them uh, to, to repent and to, to change, to, to seek their God and to move away from their sin and to pursue holiness. And, and in the midst of all of that, he was uh, he was waiting to hear uh, what, uh, what was happening there. And actually, the occasion of 2 Corinthians is actually he had met up with Titus. And Titus had come from the Corinthian church, and he said, Paul, things are happening. Things are happening. They're, they're changing. They're, they're pursuing their God. They're, they're, they're confessing their sin, and they're repenting. And it's a beautiful thing, and I want to be an encouragement to you that, that God is at work in the Corinthian church. And Paul, with that, that in his heart, along with some other themes that he was addressing in the book, speaks to that very thing. And, and we're going to pick up that thread of the narrative in this little spot right here. 
is that he describes for them. He says, what, is, what does it look like when the sorrow of our sin, the sorrow of our actions hits us? What does that look like? Well, Paul gives, a, Paul gives an illustration of how the Corinthians responded and how that contrasts to what false repentance would be. And hopefully that would give us a picture as we think about a posture of repentance, having a culture of repentance here, what that looks like, okay? Everybody tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay, let's jump in. And as we do that, as we do that, let's, um, let's remind ourselves of the dependence that we have in Christ. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord, I just want to pray for us right now that you would help us as we look at this text together, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts and help us to think about uh, what it means to repent and to do that in a way that brings you honor and glory and us joy. Help us now, Lord, as we look at your perfect and inerrant word. So let us do that together now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Read with me then in verse 9. Uh, picking up, uh, actually, let's, uh, we'll move up into verse 5, 7 verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. He's, he's speaking of the people who were traveling with him on his third missionary journey. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted, what he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, and what punishment. At every, at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So reads the very word of our living God to us today. And as you can see there, he describes a picture, doesn't it? That, that he's describing uh, different kinds of responses to when you're exposed to your own shortcomings, to your own lawlessness, to your own sin. And there, in both cases, in both cases, you can see that when they are revealed and when they look and are exposed to the sin, both have the same fundamental characteristic, is that there's sorrow, there's sorrow. Can't we all admit that? That no matter how we end up responding, right, to uh, the, the exposure of our sin in our hearts, that there's a sorrow that's there, right? There's a sorrow that's there. And so he describes that the response there happens in two sorrows. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but then there's an ungodly or a worldly sorrow that leads unto death. Let's look at the characteristic between the two, and hopefully we can paint a sketch or a picture of what repentance looks like. Here's the first one, is this godly sorrow, and you can see that there in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. This sorrow, this sorrow that is according to your salvation, this, this sorrow that produces repentance. 
The word, uh, the word sorrow there is, uh, is used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it really describes this idea of regret or to be sorry, right? It's, a, it's this idea that, that, that there is a, a remorse, right? That there's a remorse. Also in the New Testament, and this word here, sorrow, um, communicates the same, the same idea that, that there is a there is a sorrow, there is a sorrow and a, uh, and a, and a longing, a, a, a sadness, right? But this sorrow doesn't end there. That the other way that we speak about this terms of repentance, that the sorrow, the sadness, actually motivated someone to repent. What does that word repent mean? Well, repent, again, is a, is a, a word that's both used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, it has this picture. Again, you can see that in this word used in Jeremiah 3, 22, all the way through 4, 2. That, that concept there, specifically written in 3, 22, that this idea of repentance means to turn. It means to turn. That the idea of repenting is just saying, look, I was sorrowful, okay? I was, I was sad, I was grieved by what I had done, but that grief motivated and moved me to turn. Actually, it has this idea of going in one way and then turning the complete different direction and moving in a different way. That's what it means to repent. The New Testament kind of adds some more to that. It adds a little bit more of a picture. Uh, the Greek word here, speaking of repentance, is the same one, is the same one that's related to, grammatically, to the one in the Old Testament, but it adds a little bit more. It's not only to turn, not only to, to turn in, in terms of your state of mind, going from one direction in your thinking to another, but it actually turns and then adds action to it. So the idea of repentance is two things. It's not just sorrow. Sorrow isn't repentance. But rather sorrow that moves to a change of your mind that then evokes a change of action. Can you see all of those things together? Now, the sorrow that's mentioned here is the sorrow that leads unto salvation. Now, the Greek construct, for those of you who are looking in your Greek New Testament, you're like, are you kidding me? Like every major, final, every major midterm and papers do. I don't want to look at one more Greek verb. But if you were to, okay, if you were to, that you would see, you would see there that, that it's not leading unto salvation, but rather the construct says that according to or within your salvation, meaning this, is that your sorrow, your sorrow is out of your, your submission to and your acknowledgement of your God. The reason why that sorrow is a godly sorrow is that it recognizes in the end why you're sad in the first place. Because you offended a holy God. Because the sin of which you have committed is separating you as that. It is different than what God has called you in holiness. And so that sorrow, that sorrow that's according to the new life that is within you, recognizes those things, that new law that's been placed in you out of Romans 6. And that law, that law then, then grieves. And it recognizes, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to pursue my sin, and so I'm going to turn in my mind away from that, and I'm going to move towards a different path, moving away from my sin and moving towards holiness. And the actions then flow from there, don't it? 
And so it's this idea of both turning in your mind and also action in your, uh, in your presence, right? Revelation 2, uh, Revelation 2, 4 through 5 kind of illustrates this. It talks about repenting, right? Repenting and then returning back to your first love. Matthew 3, 2 uh, speaks about it this way. It says, repent for the, for the kingdom of God is at hand and to flesh out, in, in verse 8, to flesh out the fruit according to repentance. That repentance has not just a sorrow, not just a turning in your mind, but actually actions that verify it. You know, the Bible states about this. It says in Matthew 12, 33 through 37, it says that, that you will recognize a tree by its fruit. True and godly repentance here out of this passage and illustrated in other places in the, both the Old and the New Testament says that you're the verification of the change of your mind gets expressed in your actions. Gets expressed in your actions. So this repentance, this, this beautiful picture uh, recognizes those things. And there are some expressions of that that you can see, right? Obviously, this, uh, this recognition of who Christ is in Romans 8 and, and the forgiveness that comes in the gospel, that, that a turning from and saying, I don't want to pursue my sin, I'm going to turn away from that. And an action is, is I'm going to confess that and seek forgiveness, both of my God and the person of whom I offended. That's a, that's a visible expression. That's a command in Scripture, isn't it? James 5, 16 uh, commands us to confess your sins to one another. Psalm 32, 5 speaks about confessing your sin before God. That, that there is this, this, just as much as you're called to love God and to love people, when, that, when you're not loving God and loving people, the turning away from that path is then to pursue and to confess that, to share those things. Have you ever thought about what, why the command to, to confess your sins to one another? Have you ever thought about that? Um, I believe one of the reasons why that is is because it makes it real, doesn't it? Doesn't it make it real in your own heart? Then when you say it out loud, instead of in your own mind that if you had offended someone, if you had sinned against someone, if you had sinned against your God, that there's this beautiful moment, isn't there, when you release the, the, the self the self-pressure, and you confess, and you say, this is actually what I have done, both before my God and before you. Will you forgive me? I do forgive you. One of the most beautiful things that we can do in community is to forgive. Because in forgiveness, we most display the character of our forgiving God. Colossians 3.16 speaks about that, right? It says to, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven, right? So this process of repenting, the, the turning away to the sorrow that I know that I have sinned, and then to have a complete turn in my mind and also then verified in my actions is what it means to repent. It's as simple as that. There's nothing more. There's in a higher level stages. There aren't thousands of boxes that you need to check. <laughs> there, isn't, uh, there isn't a form you need to fill out. <laughs> there isn't a, a, a dynamic process. It's recognizing that when there is sorrow in your heart over your sin, that you repent by turning in your mind, 
I have sinned against my holy God and I don't want to pursue that anymore and my action out of there is to seek forgiveness from him and forgiveness from those that I have offended and then to walk differently. That's repentance. It's a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing because as we're going to see in a minute that ungodly sorrow has a most horrible burden to it. But we want to start with the beautiful picture of it as well. And, and this community can be that community that, that as you know and as you care and, and you pursue uh, relationships with one another here, that there's a freedom there to say, look, this is who my God is. This is who my God is. And I want to seek forgiveness from him and forgiveness from you if you've sinned. To confess those things and to repent. Obviously, there are all kinds of illustrations in the New Testament for that, right? Remember the prodigal son, right? prodigal son horrible things right he squandered all of his money from his father he went and got it. he spent it all and then there was this moment you remember the moment everybody remembers the pig trough moment right where he's there and then he comes the the greek term there means he came to his senses he came to his senses he realized what he had done and so then what was his what was his action he came to his senses he changed his mind and then he changed in his actions and he went back to his father you know the prodigal son it always talks about the prodigal son he always kind of gets the billing but it really is the loving father that is the picture of the story and when we remember that when the picture of repentance is not solely focused on our actions, but rather the loving and pursuing father who, when he sees his son far off, goes and runs to him with open arms and forgives him and, and, and uh, slaughters the fattened calf and gives him his ring and says, come, you are my son, I forgive you. How much more so will your God do the very same thing? And how much more so do we want to create a culture that we can emulate that with one another when we offend one another. We are a culture of repenters. A culture of repenters. You can see that in Zacchaeus, the Pharisee, uh, Zacchaeus in Luke 19, the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. Obviously, David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, of which he wrote out Psalm 51. The wonderful psalm of repentance. So you can see the beauty of it, the, the freedom of it to say that I don't have to redeem myself. I don't have to better myself. I can't. As a matter of fact, all I can do is confess that I've sinned against the holy God to change my heart and mind away from those things and to pursue a different action outside of that, knowing that it is my God of whom helps me and forgives me and gives the ability to move forward. But in contrast, look at the hopelessness of worldly sorrow. Because, you both, because the opposite of that is burdensome, isn't it? As you can see there, moving down into 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, is that it talks about a worldly sorrow. For godly grief, picking up in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Again, within the context that, that godly grief produces repentance that leads to, that is out of your salvation without regret. Whereas, worldly sorrow brings regret because it's based out of ideas that are of the world, which is condemned unto death. 
the ways that, that we can and, and do pursue repentance in a way that's not according to how God's design is more burdensome. It's, it's filled with regret. The, the sorrow, the sorrow that, that one can feel in, in worldly sorrow is to say, I'm not, I'm not sorrowful against the holy God. I'm just sad that, that I did something that I didn't want to do. The standard of my sorrow is actually my standard that I've actually just broken my own laws. I'm embarrassed that I got caught and that I actually did that. I'm sad because I don't want to be that way or I didn't live in a way that I think that I should live. Do you see the difference? Who's the standard? The world says that you are the standard. God, God, godliness says that God is the standard. But when you go to worldly sorrow, how can you repent? You can't. Because who are you repenting to? But if you're the only one, if you think about it, that if worldly sorrow, that if the standard of worldly sorrow, right, is to say that I'm, that I'm actually sorrowful, that unto death, that I'm, I, it's not of salvation, so it can't be a sorrow unto, unto God and his standards, but rather it's a worldly sorrow that says, that says I, 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 I'm, just, I'm just sad that I did something that I shouldn't do. Then how do, you, how do you repent from that? How do you redeem from that? Is that you actually move dependence, not repentance. You try to do better. I mean, can't we all, I mean, can we all just admit that? <laughs> right? Have you ever, am I the only one that's ever struggled with that? Am I the only one when, when I had come up against my own sin that instead of turning to my God and to his grace and moving away and seeking forgiveness and confessing that to others of whom I've sinned against, I went, well, I just, I'll do better. I'll just read my Bible more. I'll just, I'll just be kinder to that person who I sinned against. I'll, I'll just, I'll just um, promote and to do things better because in the end, it's, it's actually a, a kind of a, an internal way by which I justify myself instead of seeking justice and justification through my God. Do you see the burden there? We can't ever, we can't ever do good enough. We can't ever be perfect enough. We can't ever, we can't ever do enough penance in order to earn forgiveness from our God. And that brings regret. So can you see the contrast then how beautiful repentance is? Actually, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and that really was the part that came into it, saying, look, you can't earn your salvation, but you have to live out in God's grace, right? It's by grace through faith, both in your initial salvation and in your sanctification. It's all according to God's grace. But if you see that that false repentance really is penance, right? Do more things better. Minimize the impact. And, and, or, or even self-deprecating. Has that ever been a temptation? Actually loathe yourself? I'm not worthy. I'm not these things. And in some sort of strange way, it's actually comforting. But it's not repentance. It's not repentance. Because in the end... False repentance has me as the center point. 
I'm this, I've broken my standard, and therefore I have, to re- I have to try and earn my standard back through my own efforts so that I could be pleasing to God. But that's not in the Bible. But rather, it says I can't do anything to earn. <laughs> and I am a sinner. <laughs> and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ that he is my redeemer and that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so that I can go to him and say, I don't want to be a liar. I do sin. And so will you, I come to you, Lord Jesus, and seek forgiveness. And through that love and forgiveness, I can go to my friends who I've sinned against and to ask for their forgiveness. And it's just as ordinary as being encouraging to someone. It's just as ordinary as spending time with someone. Because aren't we all a community of repenters? We say, I haven't, absolutely. You don't have to do some massive thing like rob a bank or like start a nuclear war in order to confess your sin to somebody. Can it be very ordinary? And can't the beauty of forgiveness every day be just as ordinary and expressive and faithful as God's ordinary and everyday forgiveness for us? Obviously, there are a lot of pictures of false repentance, right? Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? Because when you, when you repent, you can't, you can't turn away and to pursue something that is, that is of holiness. You're, out, you're always going to end up being false in that. You're going to say that you want to change, but you're not going to change. Because the standard is your own. Remember, Pharaoh goes, yes, absolutely, you can leave. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't, right? Obviously, Judas, false repentance. Esau. Actually, Esau in, in Hebrews 12 just says that, that there's such a place that he has not recognized who his God is that he will not receive repentance even though he sought after it with tears. So that's the contrast. It starts with sorrow. And we all experience that, right? We all experience that. The question is not, not that you're exposed to and that you're sorrowful for what you've done, but rather, what do you do next? Are you going to run to your God? Or are you going to run and hide and try and save yourself? That's the picture between the two. What I think this passage illuminates and what I want to crescendo today is that it's actually better Repentance is better. Repentance comes without regret. Repentance comes without, without anything that you have to do to earn forgiveness. Repentance, repentance in that salvation proclaims God's goodness and frees you up to live and not to try to live up to a standard that you know you can't match anyway. Do you see the difference between the two? Boy, don't we have to sometimes um, remind ourselves of that? It is better. It is better. It is better that I confess my sin before my God and I repent, I turn in my change of mind and I change in my actions not to better myself but to lovingly obey my God and that I welcome other people in the process. You know what? That is better than hiding under the pressure of my own sin. Hiding under trying to be something that I know I can't be. But rather to be who I'm becoming, which is Jesus Christ. What a great reminder. And you can see there, here's a little bit of a contrast. And 
Maybe we'll just spend a couple of minutes. What, what does that actually kind of look like? What are the results? You can see that there in, uh, in verse 11. So for godly grief produces repentance that leaves us salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness. He's, he's speaking of this in terms of the godly grief that produces repentance. He then describes that in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Speaking of that, you look at there, the first there that it describes what it looks like is, is, a, is an earnestness, that there's an eagerness, that there's a diligence for righteousness. Someone who sees and is repenting eagerly pursues righteousness, is, is earnest towards it, is diligent, doesn't stop, doesn't wait an hour, doesn't wait a minute, but one is convicted of sin, runs quickly to repentance, to change of mind vindication. It's just, it's seeking pardon. What it means by that is actually to communicate what is just, to be made known, to say, you know what? You thought this because I have acted unjustly, meaning that my lawlessness before God in sin, that now I want to communicate that I haven't done that, and I want to live in a just way. I want to bring vindication. I want to communicate that I have not, that I've not done rightly, and now I do want to do rightly. I want to communicate that. The beauty of the gospel in that. I want to say, look, these are the ways that I have fallen short, but I want now to live differently, and I want to communicate that. Fear of God. What fear? Again, we've spoken of that. Not fear of man. But can we just talk about that? That's a, that's a beautiful picture of repentance. Haven't you ever seen that? Somebody in your life, a friend of yours, someone in your local church on your wing, when they have been convicted over their sin and they turn in their heart and their minds and they start living it out that they don't really care who knows? Remember when you first became a believer and you just wanted to tell everybody that you were a sinner? What happened? Why now all of a sudden we don't, we don't want to confess that we're sinners anymore. We did when we were saved, but now, but now we say, wait a minute. All of that is just saying, look, that there is a fear of God. I think one of the major, one of the major hindrances in repentance is a fear of man. I actually care more about what other people think than of what my God thinks. But true repentance says, I want to proclaim that my God is good and that he's forgiven me. And that if I've sinned against you, I want to communicate that. Now, again, I'm not suggesting by any means that you need to Instagram every sin that you've done, okay? I don't think that would be healthy or appropriate. But certainly within, certainly within the context of your relationships, if there's someone that you have, then you should be quick to communicate that. I want to seek forgiveness. I want to repent. I want to see what that looks like. When someone is guarding up, when somebody's guarding up what happens and who knows and what that 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 there's there's a fear of all those things but rather to say look there is no condemnation and therefore i don't want to be a liar these are the ways and in appropriate and right context in the right way that that when i get the opportunity to communicate that i've been forgiven i want to communicate that and that's a beautiful thing There's a longing, there's a yearning to settle the issue, as you can see there in verse 11, to work out any other problems, to see relationships restored. Have you ever thought about that? When you get something in your mind and you're convinced of it, you just want to get to work right away. 
Man, the beauty of repentance is saying, look, I've realized that this is wrong. I want to turn, and I want to act, and I want to do that now. And, and no matter who's involved or what the situation is or what the consequences are, whatever that might be, I just want to deal with it. I don't want one more day to go by when I have to falsely hold on to and live under the guilt of my sin. I want to live, and I want to live freely, and I want to get to it right away. I don't want to wait Sometimes isn't that hard, right? When you're, when you're battling it in your heart, should I, shouldn't I? When time goes by, does that help? Or does it compound? Rather, true repentance is, I want to deal with it today. I want to move forward today. There's a zeal. There's a passion for purity. And, and it says there too, it's a, and what punishment, what it means is, is avenging wrongs. That there's a concern for justice. I want to communicate that there is a just God and that I have been a recipient of that justice through forgiveness in Christ. And so I want to communicate that there is a God who will make things right and he has made my heart right when I have done wrong. Don't we want to proclaim that? And in turn, the compound effect, when people live out that culture of a posture of repentance in an ordinary way, doesn't that too promote your own heart to pursue righteousness and to move away from your sin and to do that in freedom and in safety, knowing that there's no condemnation and that you can look to Christ? To be with your friends that truly spur you on towards love and good deeds and to say, look, I'm sorry I had impacted you this way or can I confess to you that I'm dealing with this and can you help me? And that speaking and that act actually encourages other people to do the very same thing. And we could be a culture where we are all saying great is our God and we don't have to fix ourselves, but rather we can trust in him and look to his word. Obviously, the false repentance, if you just look at all those examples and you just reverse them, laziness, excuses, angry at the mess, angry at others, self-protection, fear of consequences in others and not their God, a longing for, for a, a, no longer, there's no longing for true restoration, just, just passive non-conflict. Uh, the real effort to correct is just, is just to check boxes so that people leave you alone. See the opposite? One has no regret, and the other one has all kinds of regret because you weren't designed to redeem yourself. You weren't designed to forgive yourself. We were all dead in our trespasses and sin, but praise the Lord Jesus Christ, he forgave us. And that grace that was given to you unto salvation is the same grace that motivates us and helps us and will be given to us as we respond to sorrow and godliness and we repent. Because that's according to the grace that we live in. So during these years, friends, during these years, I want this to be a time where you, where you grow in your holiness, you grow in your knowledge, but I also want to give you a freedom and a safety that this is a safe place. That as you share and as you repent and as you do that, I just want to speak on behalf of the staff, the faculty, the administration, that, that it is not, that the goal, the goal is always repentance. Always. No matter what it is. 
It's not the issue of sin, because we all sin. The issue is how do you respond when you sin? That is the most important thing. And you have an environment where you can do that. So don't be afraid, friends. Don't live with regret. And to consider that. Think about this with me, would you? Um, as you reflect upon this, um, what, what encourages your heart to repent? What is it? What encourages you? What's helpful to you? Um, what, is it, um, what is it that challenges your repentance? Right? Just to name those things. Maybe reflect upon that. Um, and, and to what, what gives you the courage then to walk through that? And how can you help and encourage others to do the same? By your example, as well as your words. So those are some things that I'd like for us to consider. If you want to review some more, I think there are some great works out there. Um, certainly the Puritan paperback, The Doctrine of Repentance, is a great uh, just theology of that. Repentance by uh, Richard Owen, which is a newer work, is a great work to think about as well. But the best way to think about it is to talk to your friends about it. What do you think about that? Can, can we look to this together? Um, can you help me? Because these are the years that we want you to grow, and we want you to change, and we want you to feel safe in a place that when God exposes sin into your heart, you don't have to run away from it, but rather you can look into it because you have the confidence that you've been forgiven, and you have the ability to repent and to change, and you're not bound by ungodliness and sorrow. That makes sense? Something to think about? So in the midst of all your papers being due and all of that, we wanted to at least put that into your heart and to think about those things. So thank you for your patience and thinking through that. Let me pray for us, and then, uh, and then we'll be done. Lord, I thank you for these students and for just their commitment, oh Lord, uh, to live and to grow and to do that in so many different ways. And I pray that as our hearts that we would be uh, a safe place, a place of uh, free repenters, both before you and others, so that we might, O oh God, proclaim that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And might we live, Lord, with a freedom and a joy that comes from that, knowing that we don't have to be anything other than uh, an individual that's been saved by grace and to thrive here and not to feel like that we need to hide. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us towards that end. Be with these students now as they transition to their class and they persevere during their middle years and might they be encouraged as well without regret in Jesus' name.